Hey, Steminists, it's Emlyn Gremlin here with a quick announcement. You are currently listening to an older episode of Stem Fatal, one in which we had not quite figured out how to turn the microphone on. So if the audio quality bothers you, I urge you to skip ahead to episode 17, where we are oh so crisp and oh so clean. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it just worked out that way. Okay, here's the app. Hey, Steminus, Emma Dilemma here with a few announcements before the start of this episode. Um, first announcement. So we recorded this episode before publishing any of our other podcast apps, and we wanted to let everyone know that there are many ways you can communicate with us now, aside from our personal Twitter Twitter accounts that are included at the end of the episode. So one, we have a Twitter account now, a joint Twitter account at stemfatalpod, S-T-E-M-F-A-T-A-L-E-P-O-D. We have a website at stemfatalpodcast.podbean.com. And we have an email account if you have longer questions or comments or want to send us a story that about a crazy cool lady that you want us to share with everyone. And our email address is stemfatalpod at gmail.com. So please contact us at any of those and we'll be happy to interact with you. Okay, second announcement. This episode contains some rated R content in the shout out section. We talk quite a bit about fruit fly mating, and it gets a little detailed at points. So you maybe wouldn't want to play this episode in a room full of children, (laughs) which please don't do that anyway. (laughs) Um, Or you may not want to play out loud in your cubicle at work if you get my drift. Okay. And last announcement, we talk quite a bit about genetics and maybe use a little bit too much jargon in this episode that not everyone is familiar with. So here is a short primer on a couple of these terms. And, you know, if you know these terms, feel free to skip ahead, but just in case we wanted to go over a few things. So genetics terms. Um, Every organism has a certain number of chromosomes, which are essentially long strands of DNA that are packaged into a tiny molecule. For example, humans have 46 chromosomes in each of our cells except for our sex cells. And these chromosomes contain strands of DNA that code for every protein in our bodies, right? Sperm cells and egg cells, however, contain 23 chromosomes each or half the number of chromosomes needed for a fully functioning organism which makes sense because when an egg cell is fertilized by a sperm cell, the 23 chromosomes in each of those cells needs to make up, um, you know, an embryo with 46 chromosomes. And one weird thing that happens when these chromosomes meet is that they will actually physically exchange DNA, like a chromosome from mom's egg and the matching chromosome from dad's sperm will connect to each other and actually switch whole sections in a process called recombination or crossing over. So I thought of a really bad analogy for this, but maybe it'll help some of you. Um, Imagine, (laughs) this is so dumb. Okay, imagine meeting up with your friend for coffee and you hug them to say hello. And during the hug, you switch legs. (laughs) 
<laughs> so <laughs> recombination is kind of like that. Except instead of switching your legs, you switch uh, pieces of chromosomes in a cell. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense, but that helps me kind of visualize it a long time ago. Maybe it will help you. And beyond that, we hope this is helpful, and we really hope you enjoy the episode. Yay, bye! By circa 1820, she ran a fossil store. She put the bones together for the and science was the province of men of noble birth But I take Marianne over the star for sure Hey! This is Stem Patel, your weekly women in science history podcast Whoop. Whoop. Oh, Whoop. we won't do that again <laughs> I'm your co-host, Emlyn Like Gremlin. And I'm your other co-host, your uh, resident Steminist. <laughs> Still trying to make it happen. Uh, Emma Dilemma. Coming at you. <laughs> Alright. Um, I have a couple questions for you. Okay. I'm, I'm ready. In what organism were the following phenomenon discovered? You're gonna, is yeah. that the end? <laughs> you can't guess yet. Okay. I'm sorry, like, thinking. <laughs> is, that, is that it? Okay. Yeah, that's it. You have to guess. No. Okay, first, crossing over. Is that an organism? No, this is a phenomenon. Oh, phenomenon. I have to guess the organism. Yeah. Okay, I'm on board. Okay. Any crossing ideas? over. Yeah. Oh, th- I thought you were going to give me a list. I will, but any ideas right off the bat? No. <laughs> I don't know what crossing over means. What? Like chromosomes. Like rec- recombination. Genetic oh. recombination. Okay. I know yeah. recombination. <laughs> crossing over sounded like... Like to the other side. Yeah. to the other, <laughs> Like to the dark side or... To heaven. To heaven. To hell. Like any... Okay. Okay. No. Recombination. Gotcha. Okay. Gene regulation. Anything coming up yet? Or is it Drosophila? No. It's a sort of a model organism. Okay. Telomeres. Or telomeres. (laughs) They're pretty much things about chromosomes. Yeah. Okay. Um, My knowledge of chromosomes. I think humans is too obvious and untrue. Yeah. Um, Other model organisms. Not humans, not, not humans. fruit flies. Stickleback. Okay, transposable elements. Maybe that will give it away. Bacteria? Um, e. coli? It's not that, but that's a good guess. <laughs> Is it? Or are you just pitying me? And fruit flies are a good guess too, actually. It's something small. Or not. I am blanking on model organisms at the moment. Um... How about a plant? Uh, is it a grass? No. <laughs> it's a fruit. Corn? Yeah. Okay. Nice. Awesome. <laughs> it only took me a while. Okay. My other, like, question that I thought about asking is, do you know why some single corn kernels look spotted or striped? 
Genetics. Genetics is correct. (laughs) (laughs) Always. Yeah, okay. So the woman I'm talking about today is the mother of chromosomes. I'm dubbing her that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Barbara McClintock. She's probably the most famous female geneticist. And honestly, I'm not sure why she's... I feel like I learned about her in, like, upper division genetics classes, but I think that she should have been talked about in more intro bio classes than she was. See, I'm gonna... uh, Nobody nobody in my committee be listening to this. I'm gonna say that I recognize the name... McClintock. Yeah. But that I wouldn't pin it to genetics or anything. (laughs) Just recognize it as a name that some people have. Yeah. You never had to do like um, chromosome mapping, like those weird chromosome mapping problems with like linked genes and figuring out how long a chromosome is. Do you remember ever doing that? Like I don't in think I ever or something. in eighth grade. I don't know when. <laughs> no, I don't college, think yeah. I'm thinking college and I'm thinking of yeah. my genetics class. And we did a lot of Punnett squares. I don't think we did that much with cro- like whole chromosomes. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I also could have forgotten. Yeah, that's also reasonable. Yeah. Okay. Well, Barbara McClintock, the mother of chromosomes, is our woman for today. <laughs> Are you ready? I'm so ready. (laughs) Okay. So she was born in Hartford, Connecticut in 1902 under the name Eleanor McClintock. I do know that. You do? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I would be shocked if you knew that. I know her original. I know her by her original name. Do you know why her name changed? I mean, no, but any guesses? From Eleanor to to Barbara. Barbara. She wasn't cool enough to be an Eleanor. Almost. She <laughs> Her parents thought she wasn't feminine enough to be an Eleanor. And so Barbara's so like they a just started bar- calling her bar- Barbara instead. <laughs> That's so upsetting. I couldn't figure out like at what age they made that choice, but it seemed it was definitely like seemed to be under ten that they made that choice. <laughs> Yeah, weird, right? I mean, if you do say Eleanor versus Barbara. I feel like they're just old names to me. Yeah. So I I can't... I guess it's the difference between, like, a a Christie and... Or now I'm thinking of Chris Christie. No. Uh, Very different. (laughs) All right. Anyway. Okay. Chris Christie's name actually used to be Barbara. Chris Barbara? Barbara Christie. <laughs> Barbara Christie. Yeah. Oh, gosh. What a guy. Is he gone yet? From Earth? No. <laughs> no. He no. got he got unseated, right? Yeah. But I don't... He's, like, his term? around. Wasn't he running for stuff? Like, he retired and was running. I don't... I, not retired. I haven't kept up with New Jersey politics. <laughs> All right, continue. <laughs> okay. So, she was born in 1902, the third of four children. Her father was a physician, her mother was a poet and an artist and stay-at-home mom, essentially. She lived in Hartford, Connecticut for a couple years, but her mom thought she was too much and sent her away to her aunt. They really made a lot of... 
I know. Sharp decisions she about this kid like, pretty early on. A bad relationship with her mom, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I would too. Yeah. <laughs> but then when she was six, she moved with her family to Brooklyn, New York. Cool. It's a cool so place. She wasn't with her aunt for that long, I guess. I don't know. Third child, I would also just be like, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Please go now. Yeah. Um, she often was very, like, played very independently and was totally absorbed in whatever she was doing, which are, like, characteristics that kind of stayed with her her whole life. And in 1919, she graduated from high school and entered the College of Agriculture at Cornell. Okay. Her mother did not want her to go to college. I'm not surprised. Because she thought female professors were weird. And she was afraid Barbara wouldn't marry if she became a professor. Well, maybe she would have married if her name was Eleanor. (laughs) Well, now she's not woman enough. Yeah. But Barb's father, who she did have a good relationship with, who always sort of um, promoted her exploratoriness, told her she should go and, like, let her go. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's good. The, all I could really get about her early life, mm-hmm. but it seems interesting. I'm surprised they didn't change her name once she decided to go <laughs> to, to college. college. <laughs> like, all right, you're not a barber anymore. Oh my gosh. You're too weird. Yeah. Now. Can't think of a... Xerxes uh, or something. <laughs> Just something really out of the blue. Yeah, I don't know. There's not much else on her family. I think she kind of strayed from her family at that point. Okay. She, so she started her undergrad at Cornell, and she gained an interest in genetics when she was 19, when she took her first course taught by C.B. Hutchison, a plant breeder and geneticist at Cornell. And he was impressed by her and telephoned her one day to invite her to participate in the graduate genetics course at Cornell. So thought, just saw something in her and was like, wow, she's going to be a good scientist, whatever. Um, And she says that this phone call or invitation was what sort of cemented her in this field for the rest of her life, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Just like one person reaching out to you that early in your career. I can see that. Yeah. Can you imagine an undergrad having a professor call you and be like, I really saw potential in you in the subject? You'd be like, all right. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. This is it for me. Yeah. Yeah. So she graduated with a Bachelor of Science in 1923. um, And she continued on to get two graduate degrees in botany at Cornell, a master's and a PhD earned in 1925 and 19. 27 respectively okay so she had a master's and a phd by the age of 25 in botany all right i'm slacking yeah right okay so in grad school her research focused on visualizing and characterizing maize chromosomes or corn yeah m-a-i-c-e not like a corn mate oh wait Whoa, corn maze. <laughs> yeah, you say corn, not like a corn maze, just corn maze. Yeah. Take the A out, and uh, it is what you mean. A hail maze. A hail maze. It's not like that. Like, no. <laughs> oh, that was bad. That's the most confusing. <laughs> not like corn maze, like corn maze. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. Oh, my. Okay. I understand. Yeah, I okay. <laughs> 
So, um, for example, during her PhD, she developed a staining technique that allowed her to identify each of the 10 chromosomes in May's cells. Okay. Or I guess, I mean, there's more than 10 in each cell, but there's, there's 10, 10 different pairs. ones? Yeah. Yes, okay. Yeah. And she could classify them based on their size and shape and describe the pattern of bands that appeared along their length. And she was, like, the first person to ever be able to look at chromosomes and describe them in such detail, basically. That's amazing. Um, so, yeah, she was kind of obsessed with maize chromosomes and studied them for the rest of her life. They're pretty amazing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, and writing this, I didn't think of that <sighs> once, but I love That's it. That's what I'm here for, just to, like, sit in silence They're and think totally of... totally balls. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that's the worst. Okay. So she became an instructor at Cornell upon receiving her doctorate. Um, even though jobs in academia were scarce during the Depression, <laughs> jobs for women oh. were limited. What? <laughs> no, when they just said jobs were scarce, I was like, oh, back in the day, there were so many more jobs. And then you said in the Depression. I was oh, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, that's probably true. <laughs> A huge, like, uh, gas. Yeah. yeah. I mean, jobs in academia have always been scarce, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but, yeah, she got one. I guess. Good job. Um, so while employed as an instructor, she continued, and she's still like 25 now. Okay. <laughs> okay. She continued to mentor and collaborate with grad students. And so in 1931, she's, I guess, 30 by then. She, almost 30, she gave graduate students Henry Hill and Harriet Crichton two important projects for these theses um, and co-authored with them. The first with Henry Hill was a method to connect chromosomes with linkage groups in corn. Okay. That's like... Um, to connect chromosomes, so is that you could tell what genes... Are were, on which chromosome. Okay. Yeah. Which people had done, I think, in Drosophila already. Okay. But she was doing it in corn. And the second one with um, Harriet Crichton was the cytological proof for crossing over or genetic recombination. So they showed that chromosomes exchange material and genes. Okay. Which at that point, no one had somewhat, Thomas Morgan, H. Morgan had hypothesized that, mm -hmm. but no one had seen it with their eyes or shown it to be true. And they were published the first ever study showing it to be true. Which so that was crazy. the first study to show that recombination is true? Yeah. And recombination is important for everything. everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For it was it's one of like the main reasons there's like any genetic variation mm -hmm. that an independent assortment, which Gregor Mendel had discovered like years before. before. Okay. Yeah. But no one really knew about recombination, though. Some people who studied chromosomes thought that it might happen because it would make sense, but mm -hmm. they never visualized it. And they, like, saw the chromosomes, like the sister, not sorry, non-sister chromatids on homologous chromosomes, like, switching DNA. Okay. Because you have two nice. copies of each, I mean... Yeah, if you're diploid, you have... you're diploid, you have two copies. Two pairs of all your chromosomes... And, and they pair up, right? 
yeah, mom, your chromosomes from mom, your chromosomes from dad pair up during um, meiosis, and then they can exchange DNA. I mean, just in general, crossing over is kind of crazy and cool. And nobody even knew um, chromosomes were made of DNA at this point in time. Mm. Like, DNA had not been discovered yet or described. That doesn't happen for 20 more years. That's amazing. Yeah. So they're just looking at chromosomes. So they don't know what chromosome... Do they know that chromosomes are related to the phenotype or, like, what you end up with? So So they had that linkage, but they didn't know what the mechanism that was via DNA. The chromosomal um, theory of inherit Or the theory of chromosomal inheritance had been proposed. Okay. That chromosomes contain something that we inherit from our parents... And that leads to our phenotype. Gotcha. And the word gene was around, but it wasn't associated with DNA. Okay. It's so weird to even, like, think of a time where that was what pe- people didn't know about DNA. So genes were just some specific... They, like, coded for information. Okay. But they didn't know what that code was, really. Okay. And yeah, those experiments crazy. were done in this time that she was working, but not at this point. Okay. It hadn't been done yet. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So that was a pretty major discovery and scientists like geneticists were really impressed and believed it and like thought it was amazing. So in 1931, the same year she published that those two papers, she received multiple fellowships in the national research council that allowed her to travel and conduct research um, continuing at Cornell, at the University of Missouri, and at the California Institute of Technology. And it was during this time that she formed an association with Lewis Stadler at the University of Missouri. He's a famous geneticist. All right, well. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. (laughs) I'll believe you. I'm so bad at history. Um, Anyway. He'd shown that x-rays can cause mutations in corn. Okay. And he was studying how mutations change phenotypes in corn. So, so they didn't know DNA. And so when they saw mutations, was it they put x-rays on corn and then they had a weird phenotype? They, or was there an intermediate? They could that they also could... see that the chromosomes had changed structure. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Those are <laughs> big mutations. Yeah. Well, okay, yeah. So he, like, sent her a bunch of strains of corn that mm. he'd exposed to x-rays, and she okay. looked at all the chromosomes and stained them and stuff. And she identified what's called ring chromosomes, which I'll explain what those are. Okay. I, these are things that confuse me, so I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> So these are a special case of chromosomes broken by radiation, and the broken ends sometimes fused to one another and formed a ring. Okay. And this led her to hypothesize the existence of a special structure at the chromosome tip, which she called the telomere, or the telomere. And she hypothesized that that structure maintains chromosome stability. Amazing. She discovered telomeres. That's amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, um, 
that was like another side note, kind of whatever. Just <laughs> whatever, just <laughs> another day. Um, and but she didn't like sequence telomeres or know that much about them. She just sort of thought there would be this chromosome cap, and she called it that. Gotcha. Okay. So in 1933, she received a. <laughs> she received. She received a Guggenheim Fellowship to okay. study in Berlin with a German geneticist named Kurt Stern, who she'd been in contact with because he was studying crossing over fruit flies, and had was gonna publish like published his paper about crossing over fruit flies three weeks or something after she did. So she beat him to it. Okay, but. So she went to Germany, but the rise to power of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party forced many Jewish scientists like Kurt Sturr and her friend to abandon their work in Germany Mm -hmm. and move elsewhere. So she went there. He had to leave. She was like, oh. Okay. She um, traveled to Berlin and met up with a different friend, another German geneticist, Richard Goldschmidt. Um, and he was the head of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in okay. Berlin. He, um, she worked with him for a little bit, but he was sort of like, hey, it's, maybe this isn't the best time. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a lot of things to deal with right now. Yeah, so she was dispirited and went home. Um, <laughs> reflecting on her time later, she wrote to her friend Kurt Stern, I couldn't have picked a worse time. The general morale of the scientific <laughs> worker was anything but encouraging. Um, there were almost no students from other countries, and the political situation and its devastating results were too prominent. Yes. <laughs> so that collab fell apart pretty quickly. <laughs> it's just sort of an interesting side note. Okay. And then upon learning that the research unit might be eliminated, I think Lewis Stradler was going to leave. Okay, at Missouri? Yeah. Also, she had a beef with, like, another lady there, Mary (laughs) Guthrie. I guess they were, like, competitors Uh or something. Um, It's good to have a healthy beef. Yeah, yeah. She decided she preferred research over teaching, and she requested a leave of absence to seek employment elsewhere. She didn't think she would get tenure there either, okay. even though some documents showed that she was going to be offered it, like, huh. the next semester. Do you think today you can ask to go on a leave of absence to find employment elsewhere? Is that not just quitting? <laughs> <laughs> Is it like, can you still pay me well? I mean, Is that's it like quitting, what? but, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you I'm quitting yeah. now and stop working, but I would like you to stop paying me. Six months from now. I don't know. I feel like people just secretly look for jobs now. Yeah. And get offers and then are like, okay, bye. Unless you give me more money or tenure or whatever, right? Yeah. Anyway. All right. I know. Pretty bold, I guess. Yes. <laughs> it worked, I guess. Um, and do you know where she ended up for basically the rest of her career? I'm gonna say no. Um, okay. I she- don't! <laughs> <laughs> she accepted <laughs> <I don't. laughs> She accepted a position as a part-time staff member of the Carnegie Institution of Washington's Department of Genetics at Cold Spring Harbor. No, I thought you'd been there. No. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot, who was I thinking of? Okay. 
So she accepted a position there, and she would stay there for the next 30 years. Um, Okay. Yeah. So this position gave her the freedom to pursue her own research without the obligations of teaching or applying for grants. Nice. Basically a dream, Mm -hmm. especially for her because she would just spend all day in lab, like 12 hours a day, every day, staring at corn chromosomes. It was her love. Like, her true love. She, she was corn... Nope. <laughs> she, it, she had a corn? She had a... She had a corn on? She was corny for she was, corn? She was corny for... It was corn. Like yeah, let's corny cut word. this out. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and she had a bunch of land there, on which she could cultivate maize. Nice. <laughs> And okay, around the same time, so let's let's just make sure our timeline is good. She left Missouri in 1941. She got a position at Cold Spring Harbor. It became permanent around 1943. Okay. And in 1944, she's elected to the National Academy of Sciences. Nice. In 1940- I'm sure Missouri is very sad. Yeah. In 1945, she's elected president of the Genetic Society of America. So. Okay, this is important because a lot of things frame her as, like, a female scientist ostracized by other scientists or ignored by her male colleagues. But everything I read, like, I mean, some things frame her that way if you read, like, short stories about her. Okay. But longer biographies are, like, paint this more complicated picture of, like, Actually, she was accepted, and her science was accepted, except for something in a few minutes. Okay. For the most part, they were giving her due credit. Yeah, it didn't seem Mm -hmm. like being a woman held her back. Okay. Like, I didn't read that in anything up to this point. Okay. Yeah. Tell me more. Anyway, and we'll see if what we think later, I guess. Yeah, it gets confusing. Gotcha. Because there's different stories from different people. Yeah. Okay. So far, though, none of her work was that controversial. Mm-hmm. And people were like, wow, she's an amazing, like, plant cytogeneticist. Yeah. 1945, still DNA had not been discovered. Okay. Just putting a frame of reference. Yes. Good. So at this point, she started studying the relationship between color patterns on corn plants and their chromosomes. And one of the colors she was most interested in was purple. And she wanted to understand the genetic reasons for purple spotted corn. So have you ever, like, seen that? Like, corn kernels that are spotted or striped? Yes. Okay. She discovered why. The amount of corn I eat, I have seen all types of corn. Yeah. I am the Barbara McClintock of eating Eating corn. corn. (laughs) I wonder if she ate a lot of corn, actually. I don't know. I didn't read that anywhere. There's so many ways to make good corn. Let's not get into it now. (laughs) What? Steam it and put butter on it? What's another way? Popcorn. Mexican street corn. Popcorn. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. You're right. Anyways. (laughs) This is making me hungry. (laughs) Okay, she compared offspring chromosomes with parent chromosomes, did a bunch of crosses, whatnot, and she found that it looked like offspring chromosomes were reorganized versions of parent chromosomes, as in parts of the chromosomes looked like they had been snipped out and shifted to entirely new locations. 
Okay. Which is weird. At that that time especially because everyone thought chromosomes were stable, genes were all in a row, and they stayed that way forever. And specifically, this is what she observed. A region of the chromosome, I think it was chromosome 9 in maize, doesn't matter that much. She called this region the dissociator region, could break the chromosome and alter the behavior of genes around it but only in the presence of another part of the chromosome that she called the activator. Okay. In 1948, she discovered that both of these could move around on chromosomes. Okay. And put themselves in new locations, and doing that would affect the phenotype. Gotcha. So these are the two important discoveries here, both of which she didn't get a lot of credit for. For a long time. Okay. One, genes can move. Yes. Two, genes can control other genes. Yes, that is very important. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Like, she just saw it. I never thought you could get such high resolution looking at chromosomes. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And she just knew those chromosomes so well from staring at them for so long. Yeah. That she knew the differences and the different banding and, like, Yeah, really, yeah, yeah, dedicated. Okay. So she developed between 1948 and 1950 a theory by which these movable elements regulated the genes by selectively inhibiting or modulating their action. She referred to these dissociator and activator regions as controlling units or later as controlling elements. Um. And she believed that they were the answer to the decades-old problem of development, how complex organisms could develop many different kinds of cells and tissues when every cell contained the same chromosomes and genes. Right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Do we want details on this mechanism or no? I'll say no. Yeah, I don't don't think so. I mean, I think the idea... So she's pretty much discovering, like, promoter regions... Promoter regions. Or hypothesizing their existence and their Transposable elements. And transposable elements. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Okay. So she kept pretty quiet about this work while she was working on it, except in personal correspondence with Should friends. we say what promoter elements and transposable elements are? Well, okay. Promoter is like the region where, like, RNA polymer. I mean, it's just yeah. It's like the the promoter is like a the region of a of the DNA that tells polymerase to transcribe. Yeah. So the promoter is what tells things in the cell to make this into a protein. Right. Yeah. So whether or not genes are turned on or turned off, they're based on the promoter. I can't. I don't know if I don't think. I think the activator was probably more of an enhancer. Like maybe it codes for a protein that helps in transcription or something, but that's getting even more complicated. Yeah, Yeah, we don't need it. Yeah. But it has been, like... Yeah, it's pretty... It's very important for... Even what DNA was. Yeah. And nobody knew, um, like, what made up a gene. Yeah. Nobody knew about a promoter region or enhancer regions or coding DNA or non-coding DNA. 
But she saw that parts of a chromosome help other parts of the chromosome get expressed. expressed. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. It's really weird. It's like even thinking about Mendel, like, knew all the stuff about inheritance Mm -hmm. without knowing DNA or Darwin. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking about was Darwin. Um, okay. In 1951, she finally presented this work at the annual symposium at Cold Spring Harbor. Okay. And she's, she wasn't reclusive, but she didn't talk, work with a lot of people, even though she had a lot of friends and colleagues that she got along well with, she didn't talk about her work a lot. And so this might have led to some miscommunication. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) Okay, so this is where things are get sort of interesting and more, like, controversial. Not that controversial, but anyway. Um, she presented her work. She used most of her talk to discuss her ideas of controlling elements as gene regulators. According to popular stories that have circulated about the symposium, Man. the scientists <laughs> treated her theories with indifference. A historian, Evelyn Fox Keller, who wrote this, like, great book about her called um, A Feeling for the Organism. Okay. She said that McClintock's work was greeted with stony silence. (laughs) (laughs) It's what you want when you give a talk. About something totally new. Yeah. (laughs) Pins dropping everywhere. From other things that I read, it seems like it's more likely. So people have interviewed people at that symposium. I mean, this is years later, so this could just be in hindsight. This is what they're saying. But they said things like they just didn't really understand what she was saying Mm. or talking about because she was the only one who understood maize chromosomes that well. That everyone was like, what? Like, they're moving around? Some of it might have been misunderstanding on some people's parts. In addition, she was really good, still really good friends with that guy, Goldschmidt, who was like, I don't know a lot about him, but I guess his theories about chromosomal inheritance and genes were at odds with other geneticists at the time. Okay. Her conclusions went along with his theories, and so people were sort of against her ideas a little bit for that reason because they were like she no, was taking sides cool. yeah okay. taking sides in this issue that i don't really know that whole story there's a whole book about it okay. whatever um <laughs> but she couched her data to stick with his theory basically okay and another scientist might not have been that into that yeah so but in reality in reality most of the scientists there respected her data of what they could understand. Okay. <laughs> and, but they just doubted the conclusion, so it didn't have this effect that she thought it would have at yeah. the time. So she continued researching these elements, but she didn't publish her work on it for years because of, of other scientists' reactions to it. And she was like, I don't no one's reacting to it the way I thought they would. I'm excited about this. I'm just going to work on this alone. Yeah. Maybe I don't want to, like, get shit, like, shat on a bunch. Shat on. Shat. <laughs> yeah. For people disagreeing with me. But she was still highly regarded in her field. So this didn't, like... It didn't... weren't, like, oh, you stupid woman. Or, yeah. Like, I don't think that was the atmosphere, from yeah. what I can tell. It was just maybe a little too much and... For that, a lot of people to understand, and it was already a controversial yeah, topic. Right. Yeah. Okay. 
So just giving some like social context yeah. to that time. I like it. In the 50s, the NSF and the Rockefeller Foundation co-sponsored her on research trips to South America and Mexico to study different varieties of maize plants, which sounds really fun. Yeah. Um, she worked with grad students and local scientists in Peru, Colombia, and Mexico. Um, she explored the chromosomal, morphological, and evolutionary characteristics of different races of maize for the next, like, 20 years. Beginning in... 1962, she supervised. Okay, in 1981, <laughs> she like published a pretty land a landmark study called the Chromosomal Constitution of Races of Maize with some scientists in Latin America, and it was it's contributed significantly to evolutionary biology, ethnobotany, and paleobotany. And she retired from the from Cold Spring Harbor in 1967 and began work as an emeritus there after that. Okay. However, okay, this now we're gonna go back a little bit. But, go back. So these are those are the things she worked on publicly. Were like these maze race. <laughs> okay. That <laughs> sounds like such a weird word. Like basically variation in maze mm-hmm. and how chromosomes related to that. In the early 1960s, two French geneticists, Francois Jacob and Jacques Monod, I don't know how to speak French, wrote a paper describing genetic control and regulatory elements in the lac operon. Okay. Which is sort of the famous example. What is the, do you know what the lac operon is? Yeah, it's like, you know, it's this whole operator, promoter, like they really figured that out in this specific gene region for making lactase, I think. Okay, yes. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, She saw this paper and was like, that's just like what I found Mm -hmm. in maize. And so she wrote a paper in AMNAT describing an American naturalist, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. (laughs) Where she just like described the similarities between their discoveries. That's nice. Yeah. It's ballsy. (laughs) Um... And then people were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> what, which, oh, I'm, okay, I'm going to hearken back to, um, there's a speech that Trump gave <gasps> that people, if you listen to the speech at the end of Legally Blonde, that <gasps> is given by Reese Witherspoon. Oh, my gosh. It's pretty much the same. So pretty much she was just like, let me pa- put these side by side in a video. Yeah. Of Reese Witherspoon <laughs> and Donald Trump giving the same speech. Or Melania. Does it seem? Uh, yeah. Does it seem? Don't you see this similarities? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this was now after DNA had been discovered, okay. also, which happened in the mid 1950s, as the Watson and Crick paper and all those studies went yes. on. And people were actually able to like look at DNA sequences and stuff, and they. Saw this comparison. Okay, also, researchers finally discovered the same process in bacteria, yeast, and bacteriophages in the 60s and 70s. And then she was credited with discovering it. Nice. Once they realized, yeah, like, this happens in other organisms. It makes sense now. (laughs) Like It's not just this crazy maze thing that (laughs) we don't understand. Yeah. That was good. In 1971, Richard Nixon, the president at the time, awarded her with the National Medal of Science. He said, this is funny, which 
This is not how politicians feel today. No. And I'm not saying Nixon was a good guy, but he said this. I have read explanations of your scientific work, and I want you to know that I do not understand them. (laughs) Um, But I want you to know, too, that because I do not understand them, I realize how enormously important their contributions are to this nation. That, to me, is the nature of science to the unsophisticated people. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I like that. Now people are just like, I don't get it, so I don't trust it. Yeah, I don't get it, so it's wrong. Yeah, crazy. And in a few short years, she also received institutional recognition for her work on transposable elements. In 1978, she was given the Rosen Teal Award for Basic Medical Research. She became the first recipient of the MacArthur Foundation Grant or the Genius Grant. Mm-hmm. First person ever oh. to get one. So they were like, this woman's crazy, amazing, let's. Yeah. Ama- She's amazing. amazing. <laughs> let's give her a Genius yeah. Award. <laughs> um, and in. 1983, when she was, she's 81 now, she received the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for her work on mobile genetic elements. Wait, so she's still alive? No, that was 1981. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 40 years later. <laughs> I feel like the 80s were like yesterday. I know, right? Um, okay, and she spent her remaining years telling her story and giving talks to younger scientists at Cold Spring Harbor. And she died in 1992 at the age of 90 and she was awarded like 15 graduate what is it like when they honorary degrees yeah Yeah. phds here's some quotes from her over the many years i truly enjoyed not being required to defend my interpretation (laughs) (laughs) i could just work with the greatest of pleasure i never felt the need nor the desire to defend my views if I turned out to be wrong, I just forgot that I ever held such a view. It didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then I thought that was sort of interesting. <laughs> and then this was on um, her writing to someone on women in science. And this was in 1947. Oh, okay. She was, sorry. She was acknowledging that she was had a really like great position at Cold Spring Harbor to her friend Kurt Stein in mm-hmm. 1947, and she felt really lucky to have that position. And she said, some young women in science have to grasp at any small bit of evidence that, that will help maintain their morale. If, ever, if I ever have a chance to talk with such girls, I can usually help overcome some of their frustrations by being realistic about women in professions. And she got an award in 1947 from the American Association of University of Women. And she said the award ceremony was unexpectedly pleasant. (laughs) (laughs) She said it was the handsomest group of women I've ever seen. Handsome as only intelligent middle-aged women can be. (laughs) (laughs) And they all were named Barbara. Yeah. (laughs) Because they were handsome, not pretty. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, I guess. Anyway, so that's all I've got. Amazing. Uh, I love it. I know. Isn't she cool? She's very cool. And there's two, like, interesting biographies about her. I have a lot of resources, but these are just if you want to know more about her. The first one was published in 1983 by Evelyn Fox Keller, which I mentioned earlier, titled A Feeling for the Organism. This is more based on, like, interviews with Barbara while she was still alive. (laughs) 
Versus those interviews you get with Barbara. <laughs> in the afterlife. Those biographies are pretty weird. Wait, what was the other thing for recombination? Crossing over. Crossing after over. She's yes, crossed after over. she's crossed over, these are those interviews. <laughs> um, and the second biography that I liked was published, I mean, there are probably others, but mm-hmm. I didn't find them. Um, was published in 2001 by Nathaniel C. Comfort, and it's called The Tangled Field, Barbara McClintock's Search for the Patterns of Genetic Control. And this one's based on interviews with people at Cold Spring Harbor, her unpublished notes, some of them, and reading through her studies, and he sort of debunked this idea that she was, like, ostracized for being a woman in science and brought in not that she never faced any hardships for that, but yeah. just like brought it into this broader social social context of like what her work was in comparison to other work at the time, and how that led to some controversy. Awesome! Yeah, I love anyway, it. Anyway, that's it for for Barbara McClintock. Yay! She's the best. Yeah. Now I need a I need a beer. Yeah, okay. that's cool. All right. This is our work, work, work segment, work, 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 work. which is the segment where we give shout outs to badass women doing science today. Yeah. So I have two, one shorter and cool and the other one is longer and disturbing. Oh, maybe I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm excited. I'm amazed. <laughs> Still. <laughs> Okay. Oh gosh, we'll never make that joke again I know. after this no. week. <laughs> Unless there's more corn research, which there is. Probably, yeah. actually, yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. So there's a group of people in Southeast Asia. Have you heard of these people? They're called the Baju, but they primarily subsist on fishing, and they can spend up to like five hours a day uh, diving. Whoa. But like five hours a day underwater. People. People. No. Humans. Um, And they can hold their breath for, some individuals in this community can hold their breath for up to 13 minutes at a time. Whoa, wait, how do they dive for that long? That is what I will tell you. (laughs) (laughs) So this week, uh, a geneticist, Melissa Yardo, and her colleagues published a paper in Cell that shows that the Baju have unusually large spleens. So their spleens are up to 50% larger than normal average people what's a spleen do so the spleen that's a very good question (laughs) (laughs) i know um so apparently this 50 percent larger spleen provides them with larger numbers of red blood cells whoa and i huh yeah blood cells are making your bone marrow i know so i don't maybe i really should have researched this more no it's okay Honestly, something that happens in the spleen contributes to a larger number of red blood cells, which allows them to dive for longer and have oxygen in their lungs okay. or I have enough oxygen. Yeah, I'm not going to question it. So they also, so they went and sampled DNA from a bunch of these these people and compared it to other communities that don't spend a lot of their time deep or diving for yeah. for their in their income. And they found the genetic variations that are associated with this increased spleen oh, size. So they nice. know what genes are causing these larger spleens that are allowing 
this population to spend an insane amount of time holding their breath underwater. So that's my first shout out. My second shout out. Well, I'm just going to read you the title of a Vice article no. that talks about this. Oh, Vice. I know. <laughs> um, male fruit flies love to come. <gasps> I saw this! <laughs> and turn to alcohol if they can't. Yeah. Okay, so this study... <sighs> so the first author... I'm going to butcher these names because it's uh, an Is Israeli lab Ulrich? group. Oh. No. Um, so the first author is a woman named Sheer Zer uh, Crispil. And the lab that she works in is also a woman. So first author and last author, both women. Nice. And the last author and the lab that this is this research was done in is Gali uh, Shohat uh, Afir. Uh, and they're both from Bar- Barlan University in Ramat, Gan, uh, Israel. And they published a paper this week showing that male flies enjoy ejaculating. Yeah. So we know that sex is rewarding for many animals, right? Yes, like we've we seen know. <laughs> we know scientists know. But why and what part of sex is actually rewarding is harder to get at. Okay. So is it the sex? Is it the intimacy? Is it some partner bonding? Like well, what is it? Fruit flies aren't that intimate, right? They just <laughs> <laughs> Well I guess they have their whole courtship dance and everything. There's that yeah. and there's some contact with a female. True, yeah. So what they did was they actually engineered male fruit flies to ejaculate when re- they're in red light. So So crazy. like this weird red light district where like the red light <laughs> comes on and they just like jizz themselves. Ah, red light. <laughs> I hope they played that over and over again in lab and like everyone went crazy. Well they did in order to determine if ejaculating was, like, a reward onto itself, they actually paired this red light with a, a different cue that they shouldn't have any preference for to then see if after they have had this um, association, if they would then prefer this new cue. And the cue was not a sting song, but <laughs> it was some odor. Police, I think that was Oh, the police. police. Well, well, similar it enough. Sting. It yeah. is sting. But um, instead they would turn on this red light and have some odor, and then the males would ejaculate, and then they would have this odor elsewhere, and oh they were... Gosh. They their preference for this odor was very strong after this association. Wow. Suggesting that there is... Um, some type of reward, like brain reward system, uh, just in ejaculating that is making them. That's very cool because they can kind of figure out what part of sex is is giving a reward to males. It's actually ejaculation and not anything else related to females. (laughs) (laughs) Not that you love your partner. Not that you love your partner. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it's sort of different in humans, like more complicated. Yes, but they do say that the reward pathway is super ancestral, and so it's a highly conserved pathway in the brain and may be able to tell us something um, about our own reward system. Yeah. So interpret that for humans as you will. (laughs) But also in this study and in previous work in this lab, what I found was really cool, that they also looked at 
uh, male flies preference for a sugary drink versus an alcoholic drink. Right. Before, like, whether or not they had sex. Yeah. And so, uh, male flies that had sex or just ejaculated on their own, they went for the sugary drink rather than the alcoholic drink. Right. And then also for males that didn't get to ejaculate or have sex at all, they strongly preferred an alcoholic (laughs) drink. (laughs) I saw a woman give a talk about that, like, five years ago. I want to say her last name is Ulrich, but okay. and she worked at at in San Francisco, like at SF State or something. Um, and it was like they would pair males with mated females that are less likely to mate again, mm. and with virgin females that are like ready, ready to go. <laughs> I guess, which is like, which is a whole, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's how fruit flies work, I guess. Yeah. And yeah, if they mated. All good. Yeah. If they didn't mate, they would drink tons of the alcohol. <laughs> because it, like, rewards the yeah, same... Yeah, it rewards the, the same, same brain pathway. Yeah. Yeah, that's so what they were crazy. saying in this. But I thought just the, the the fact that they can engineer fruit flies now to just ejaculate on yeah. command with a red light <laughs> is pretty amazing. That is... Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so those are my shout-outs of the week <laughs> <Hello>. to... <laughs> Women who do strange but important research. All right. Now I think we're going to move on to our final section, which is trivia. Trivia. Got some questions that I got to ask and ask. Well, ask me a question and I'm going to not know what it is. Okay. So okay. last week's question was this. In 1963... The first woman to travel into space flew for 71 hours and orbited the Earth 48 times. What was her country of origin and what was her name? Did you look it up or any? No. No, I didn't look it up. I said Russia last week. Yeah. And it was Russia. Yeah! Yeah. (laughs) And her name was Valentina Tereshkova. And I forgot to look up more information. <laughs> That's okay. But I remember she's really cool, so I think one we of should us do it. will. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We don't. We don't want to tell too much about yeah. her. Okay, and this next <gasps> one—it looks long. It's not. <laughs> it looks really long. It's like a whole page. There's two parts, okay. and I just put down all the information so I didn't have to look gotcha. it up again later. Gotcha, don't gotcha. worry. Okay. <laughs> Um, there's two parts, so I'm going to ask the first part this week and the next part next week. Ooh. Okay. Okay. So, in England... In I'm with Jolio- you. <laughs> yes, keep keep on with that accent, please. offensive. Yeah. The Royal Society in London... You've heard of it, yeah? Oh, wow! No! <laughs> I was like... <laughs> Some southern. Oh god! I've not heard of it. <laughs> I don't know how to do accents. I shouldn't try. Uh, uh. <laughs> that was your English accent. I'm so sorry. Uh. On throwing shade, they do accent offs, and it's oh, so funny. Oh uh, god, yeah, it's amazing. We should not do that. No, no, because no, it will just be Southern. <laughs> okay. Uh, but you've heard of the Royal Society. <laughs> yes, I know of the Royal Society. Um, 
they're the they're sort of like the National Academy here. They're the oldest scientific national scientific institution in the world. Uh, founded in 1660. This is just a little background. Oi, governor! <laughs> is that better? Oi, yeah. That's oi, cool. oi, governor! Governor. Governor. Oi. <laughs> Wait, no. <laughs> All I can think of to say is oi. <laughs> the royal society. I love it. <laughs> yeah. It makes me really cringe. <laughs> I know, it makes me very uncomfortable. Okay. Uh, okay, move on. Um... Should I read the rest of this? Yeah, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. <laughs> okay, wait, okay. Fellowships, they were founded in 1660. Okay. 400 years ago. Their fellowships are open to scientists, engineers, and technologists from the UK and the Commonwealth of Nations. <laughs> Other UK-ish place, like colonies, basically. Yeah. Um, and you get a fellowship on the basis of having made, quote, a substantial contribution to the improvement of natural knowledge, including mathematics, engineering science, and medical science. Are we in the trivia section? Yeah. Okay. I'm just <laughs> like giving, totally I'm lost giving for background okay. in case no one's ever heard of gotcha, the Royal gotcha. Society. It's just a big society. It's like, in the UK, it's second only to getting a Nobel Prize. Is becoming a member of the Royal Society. Gotcha. Okay, so here's the question. Yes. And this will be the end. <laughs> yes. I love it. Okay. In what year was the first woman nominated to become a fellow? Nominated. Not become one. In what year was the first woman nominated? Am I supposed to um, guess? Or right, hold on. There's more to the question. Okay. Is there? Yeah. Okay. Who was she... And why did the Royal Society deny her the fellowship? So this woman did not receive the fellowship. She was nominated. She didn't get it. And there's a specific reason they didn't give it to her. Okay. And it's not just that she's a woman. Okay. I'm going to say 1950, Mrs. White. Who? <laughs> okay, just generally. Murdered someone with a candlestick. Close. We'll have to wait till next week to <laughs> yeah. figure out if that's true. That's actually not close at all, yeah. but I really love it. All right. So I guess send offy things. Goodbye, farewell. Goodbye, farewell. Rate us on iTunes. It helps people find us. Our music was by Artichoke. The song is Mary Anning. Yeah. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, I am Ecology Gremlin, G R E M. L Y N. And I'm Emma Dietrich, 8 9. Dietrich, like uh, diet rich. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> and. Uh, All right. Nice. Do, wait, do we have a sign off? Oh, um, yes. Which um, one did you want? The one. Go <laughs> stimulate yourself? No! <laughs> <laughs> Universally considered the worst okay. sign off. Um, wait, what was it? What was it? How you like stem apples? <laughs> Is that good? Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs> By circa 1820, she ran a fossil store. She put the bones together.